In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today as we begin a new session of the Adult Bible Study Program. Help us to open our minds and our hearts and sort of set aside preconceived notions about the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, because we're going to look at it in a different way uh, in this session. So give us the strength and the grace to open our minds and our hearts to the Holy Spirit and be enlightened. Help us to hear what you want us to hear uh, rather than what is set up here. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. The handout that you got today, I want to go through that because it's rather extensive and I think it's important that, uh, and where's my copy? Oh, all right, we have one up here. All right. Uh, the page, first page, I'm sure that you've all had a chance to read that now or at some time in the near past. So let's go to the next page here. The book of Deuteronomy. This is a little bit of a history. Uh, I was going to use it as the basis for the first class, but I then kind of changed my mind in a way. Uh, but I left it here because it does have some information that I think is necessary for all of uh, you to read, and we'll get back to that later. On the back side of that, though, is a map that shows the estimated route of the people who left Egypt with Moses and headed for the promised land. When I say estimated, because obviously uh, we have no proof of any of it, but based on the various towns that are mentioned along the way. This is what most people, most theologians, believe is the estimated route. And I'll explain that uh, a little later as we get into uh, the deeper subject here. Okay? Uh, but the, uh, the route is pretty much the same. I've looked at other uh, guesses or other routes and they're all pretty much the same. So we feel that um, it is what is uh, the real thing. Okay. Now, the next part here is something I would like to go through uh, with you and I'm going to do a little show and tell. You know, you're all accustomed to your children or your grandchildren uh, doing a show and tell at school. Well, I'm going to do a little show and tell up here. And uh, I hope the Lord is with me because I've not done this before. And so this is going to be a first time for me. All right. But let's take it paragraph by paragraph. And I'm going to show you something here. In order to better understand the meaning, the purpose, and the message of any book of the Old Testament, but particularly the first five books, we must first understand its origin. That is, where did the book come from and why? Contrary to what most people believe, 
uh, or have been told or assumed for many years, Moses did not write the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, I know in many faiths that is uh, sort of gospel truth. Well, unfortunately, it's been proven that Moses did not write uh, the first five books. Now, he greatly influenced it with his teaching. Yes, we all admit that. But he didn't write them. Okay. In fact, the Jewish people were without any documentation of their faith, customs, or traditions until the latter part of the 10th century B.C. And it's about that time that it is believed it was Solomon that encouraged the Jewish people to begin writing their history or histories because it was the custom at that time that any nation that took pride in itself and its history would want to document them as a sign of its identity and purpose. When one nation conquered another, the first thing that was done was that the destruction of the was the destruction of the conquered nation's histories as a sign that that nation no longer existed. So there was a great deal of importance in writing the histories as far as Solomon was concerned and uh, the future kings of Israel. Okay. In response to this encouragement and need, a group of people in the southern part of Israel. Now, if you turn to the map, map on the back of that page, you'll see a sort of a jagged line right in the middle. It's because the 12 tribes of Jacob that made up the Jewish nation at that time were divided by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And there's a long story about that, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but the various communities or uh, groups of people of Israel, north of that zigzag line, became the northern kingdom of Israel under the leadership of Jeroboam, unfortunately a very uh, name common to Rehoboam. So you've got two guys fighting against each other with very similar names. Those uh, communities south of that line retain uh, the central part of Israel, which was Jerusalem, and they retained the name of Judah. All right, so the north became the kingdom of Israel, and the south became the kingdom of Judah towards the end of the 10th century B.C. And that is what we're talking about here when we say that in response to this encouragement and need, a group of people in the southern part of Israel came together to begin writing their histories which up to that time had been transmitted orally. By the time this was accomplished in the initial state, latter part of the 10th century BC, the nation had become divided by Solomon's son Rehoboam, who continued to call his portion Judah, while the northern 
portion retained the name Israel under the leadership of Jeroboam. And this is an interesting uh, story in itself, but not relevant to the topic that we're getting into now. But just keep in mind, there now are two kingdoms made up of the overall Israel. The northern part, which is Israel, the southern part, which is Judah. Okay? This small group, that is the people in Judah, who were later called Yahwist, or the Yahwist group, after Yahweh, the name that they used for God in the early stages of Jerusalem, were literary artists and lovers. And they loved a lot of juicy stories, okay? They focused on the heart and where the earth were earthly, earthy and frank in describing their understanding of the past and favored strong leadership like King David. Their emphasis was to show that the promises of God made to Abraham were fulfilled in the empire of David. This group is designated as the J group because uh, there was no Y in the ancient Hebrews. All right, now, the J group. I'm going to say that these, the colors are important, okay? But this is the history of the J group, all right? We're going to put this down for a minute. Now let's go on. Soon after, a small uh, group of people in the northern kingdom of Israel came together about the late 9th century B.C. to develop their histories and recorded them as they understood it and remembered them. This group was later identified as the Elois group. After their name for God, this group stressed the role of the prophet, a strong tone of challenge and morality. It was anti-Jerusalem, and it stressed the covenant with Moses as more important than kingship. Remember, the J group favored kingship in its teachings and thought. The Elois group favored morality uh, rather than kingship. This group is designated as the E group, E after Elois. All right, so these green pages now are going to represent the Elois group. In the 8th century, or early 7th century B.C., Another group in the northern kingdom came together to counter the pagan inroads and the unfaithful kings of the northern kingdom. Their contribution was centered on the history and the teachings of Moses with a strong moralistic tone. They emphasized the role of the family and fidelity to the covenant of God, to the covenant with God made through Moses. 
This group was called the Deuteronomist group. And their contribution was and is known as the Book of Deuteronomy. It is also known today uh, with some other, it is the Book of Deuteronomy, as it is known today uh, with some later editions. This group is designated as the D group. So we have a D group here. The last part of the influence of the Old Testament scripture came from what is referred to as the priestly group, which came to prominence during the Babylonian exile, 6th century BC. With the demise of the Jewish monarchy, the Jewish high priest came to power due to the lack of any other person of authority. After the exile, and the return of the Israelites, later called Jews, the Jewish high priest was the central and only authority. The priestly group was known for its emphasis on obedience to the law and the permanence of God's blessings on the Hebrew people. This is the P group. And we have another group of papers up here representing the P group. It is believed that the priest Ezra, how many of you know about Ezra? Well, you're going to learn a lot about him in this session, okay? It is believed that the priest Ezra, in trying to fulfill the needs of the people, assembled uh, from all of the so-called histories of the Jewish people, and edited, redacted, or rewrote them in the, into the four books of the Old Testament, and added from various sources what we now call the book of Genesis, which up to this time had not been a major part of those histories. These five books then became the center of the early Jewish history, not only of the people, but of their faith, as well as, and over time, they were revered and became the sacred book of the law, or Torah, as it is often called today. Okay. Now, let me demonstrate a little bit here. We're going to take and this is Ezra doing this, all right? So I'm playing the role of Ezra today. I'm going to take some of the Jewish histories here and divide them because not all of these should be in the same category. So what we're going to do is we're going to say that some of those should be in one book, and some of them should be in another. I'll get to that in just a minute as soon as I shuffle the papers here. <clears throat> All right. So we're taking some of these papers here because not all of them belong in uh, together. There's a lot of mixture of 
various things in here that the Jane people thought were very interesting and important to them. So we're going to put these here in this little pile called Exodus. And we're going to put the rest of the stuff that didn't pertain to the four important points of the book of Exodus, which is Moses and his call to service, the Exodus journey, the Ten Commandments and the covenant, and building of the sanctuary. That is the main four points of the book of Exodus. Now, we're not going to study Exodus in this session, but we're going to refer back to it in many ways. A lot of it, uh, this, these same histories, went into the book of Numbers and into the book of Leviticus. Now, why? Well, Ezra wanted to put some order to these books, all right? So numbers are all of the events of Exodus that don't apply into the four parts of Exodus. And then he even subdivided that in taking out all of the um, religious part of the books of Exodus, and that is the laws of purity and the sacrifices and the Holocaust, which he thought were very important, and they are, or they were, and he put those into the book of Leviticus. All right, so we have here something from the north in the book of Numbers, the book of Exodus, and the book of Leviticus. Well, after that, you know, we had the northern kingdom here. And they wrote their histories. Well, since they were all from the same people originally, a lot of those histories were the same. But over time, you know, things have a way of changing. You remember that when we were kids, we probably played a game called telephone, and we would whisper something into a person's ear, and then ask them to repeat it in, to someone else, and so forth and so on. And then the last person was supposed to tell what that message was, and it would be entirely different than the way it started out. Okay? Because each person either added his or her influence or belief or whatever. Anyways, you have the same thing here. In the northern kingdom, they came from the same beginning. They were all under Moses at one time. They were all under King David at one time. But over a period of time, they got, you know, a little bit different. One of the, well, I won't go into it, some of the details because we, okay. So, what happens here is Ezra takes, and he's going to put some of these histories from the north in the book of Exodus. And he's going to put a few more in the book of Numbers. Uh, the numbers and the colors don't make any difference right now. And we've got Leviticus over here. Because they were basically 
to the same subject matters. All right. Well, now, we have four different books started here. When the people went to Babylon, they took all of this stuff with them. But there was one thing different. The book of Deuteronomy seemed to stand out. And Ezra took a hold of this book of Deuteronomy, and he felt that this was far more important, uh, and left it alone. So it was not divided, because in some ways it covered all of these, but in a different way and for a different reason. I'll explain all of that later. I'm really wanting to get you to see how the first five books of the Bible were put together. That is the whole objective of this. So the Deuteronomists were very influential in a lot of this, but it was Ezra who was from another group called the priestly group. Right? So you have three different groups and now you've got a fourth. These are groups of people. These are not the books, all right? The priestly group, as I said here when I was reading that, became very important during the Babylonian exile because the monarchy had been destroyed. There were no more kings of Israel or Judah. That was done away with because now they were captives and they were under the domination of Nebuchadnezzar and then later under uh, the Medes and then the Persians. Okay, so, but while they were in Israel, I mean, so sorry, while they were in Babylon, they were not slaves in the way we often think of slaves. They were indentured servants and they were able to develop uh, programs and have a life of their own. Some of them even became uh, quite prominent and had businesses of their own. Ezra was the high priest and he became in, very influential in getting the people to study the book of Deuteronomy up to this point that had not been touched by anything else or anyone else. It was probably only the uh, center part of that, chapters 12 through 26. But nevertheless, it was in that that the people of Israel, now captives in exile in Babylon, couldn't understand up to this point why God would let them be conquered and get into Babylon as captives when he had always promised through all of the covenants that he would protect them. And it was finally that Ezra convinced them to realize that it was through their own sins and their lack of attention to God and the moral law that got them there. So this is what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. It was trying to tell these people right from the beginning, way back 
from the 8th century, 200 years before, that they were in the wrong path. And the Deuteronomists started out in the northern kingdom. The people there wouldn't accept that. So when the Assyrians came in and captured the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, some of the people in this Deuteronomist group gathered up all of the documents and fled to the south. But the people in the south, in Judah, didn't accept the, those documents either, those laws, those rules in the book of Deuteronomy. They were not accepted either, partly because they made restrictions and so forth and so on. And I'll explain all of this later as we go through. This is kind of a quick overview, but I want you to see how these five books of the Old Testament were put together. All right. So Ezra was a great influence on the people turning around as far as their faith was concerned. And after they left Babylon and returned to Israel or to Judah or the country of Israel, they declared that they were going to straighten up and fly right, turn around and obey God. Well, that didn't always work out, but uh, over a period of time, Ezra returned, of course, with them and continued his work of trying to revise all of these books into something that was of value to the people of Israel and Judah together. All right. So what he did was he straightened out and rewrote a great deal of the book of Exodus, which has only those four subjects. He straightened out and recognized and rewrote much of the book of Numbers. He did the same with Leviticus. Okay, Deuteronomy, he didn't touch. He added a few things, but they were relatively minor. Not, not in importance, but minor in quality, quantity. All right. Now, so what's missing? Genesis, the book of Genesis. All right. So Ezra takes what's left of some of these early histories and then through the great inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because remember the first uh, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis is all about creation, and the Jewish people had no idea of any of that. But Ezra was greatly inspired by the Holy Spirit to write not only the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, or what we call the first 11 chapters now, but he began with some of the histories here and developed what was the remainder, that is, the life of Abraham, The story of pre-creation, Abraham and the covenant, Isaac, Jacob, and their families, 
Joseph and preparation for the Exodus became the basis for Genesis. So now you have the five books of the Old Testament. It was also Ezra that made these particular five books something special. And they, over a period of time, became what the Jewish people called the Torah. And that is how these were all put together. Any questions? Well, thank you. I'm glad you brought that up, Anna. Anna just said he had to be a very old man. It's, when you read this, there is very little history of any of the Jewish people from the time of the exodus, uh, of the return of the people from Babylon to the time of Christ, which is from the year 539 B.C. to the time of Christ. There's very little um, history uh, or anything written during that time period, partly because I think God just gave up on the Jewish people. He knew they were not sincere. They did not uh, stick to the book of Deuteronomy, and they turned, as you know, from many of the things uh, that Jesus says in the New Testament about the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, I should say, not the people themselves. Uh, and reading all of that, I came to the same conclusion. Ezra must have lived 150 years to accomplish all the stuff that is given credit to him. Uh, obviously, that isn't true, but his influence. He is often called a second Moses. And in your handout for next week, I will give you some information uh, on Ezra so that it will help you, you know, kind of pull things together. Yes, Dick? So we got the five books, and they were done in the 5th century. They were put together and gathered in the 6th century, yeah. Now, so we got a whole bunch of other books. Uh-huh. And they had to be completed by about the 3rd or 4th century? Yes. So who was putting them together just quickly? Well, we have a person, we have no name, but we have a person called the Chronicle. Or there's two books in the Old Testament called the Books of the Chronicles. Uh, they pretty much repeat a lot of what I just said here. Uh, and they give you a lot of history. Unfortunately, they don't give names or dates that we can take for certain. Uh, but the books that are in the Old Testament outside of these five. And we start with Joshua, Judges, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, etc., and then the Book of Kings, etc., etc. Uh, those were all written later, much later, after the actual events took place. But all of them were completed uh, by the 2nd century B.C. And so the Jewish or the Hebrew version of the Old Testament 
was completed as we see it today by the second century BC. Now, you can't give any one person credit for all of that, Ezra or anyone else. Um, even our own Bible, the New Testament, uh, has gone through changes over the years. Uh, not significant in meaning, but uh, wording and so forth and so on. Uh, but we know that the Old Testament was completed by the second century BC, and then it was converted uh, from Hebrew to Jew, uh, to uh, Greek uh, a little bit later, after the uh, after the Greek uh, capture of Israel, which was in uh, after 313 BC. Okay. Um, so there were a lot of changes over a period of time. And again, as we go through this section over the next uh, nine or ten weeks, we're going to uh, get more in, into the depth. Now, does that help anyone understand the first five books of the Bible and how they came to be? All right. No one person can take credit for any of it because there were a lot of people involved in all of this. All right. Let me go on to another subject here. In the next section here, you have a great deal of detail here about the book of Deuteronomy in itself. And then here's a uh, something that you're all generally familiar with, and if not for the new people, it's important that on that table up there, as you come in each week, you will have an outline of the agenda for that particular session. And on the back of that, you'll have the homework for the following session. Okay. Any questions about that? And it's up to you to get a copy of that each week as you come in. It will be there. And it is up to you to follow through on the homework for the following week. Now, I want to turn to the last page here. And some of you have heard me say this a zillion times, but I'm going to repeat it because this is my way of expressing God's plan of salvation. Everything that God has done, will do, or is referring to, is in connection with his plan of salvation. Nothing that God did, does, or will do is outside of this that pertains to everybody now. 
you might say, well, what about God uh, appearing to certain people? In most cases, it is either for something that is already in connection with this plan, or it is a private uh, revelation of some kind meant for that person alone. Right? But as far as the church is concerned, everything that uh, God wants to be revealed to mankind has already been revealed, and that is the purpose of the church, to explain that to us uh, as time goes on and as it is necessary to do so. I just want to make sure that you are aware of this, because it is extremely important to see how all of the things that we talk about fit into God's plan of salvation. The first one-third of this circle is the time and the role of the Old Testament and the time and the role of the Father. That doesn't mean that the Father is then can sit back and has laurels and, and not get involved. Remember, there's only one God, but there are three divine persons, and each of those three divine persons has his prominent role in this plan. So, God the Father's role is the early time of what we call the Old Testament period, then that could not, under any circumstances, satisfy the requirements of salvation, which means and required a divine sacrifice that no human being had. And therefore, God himself had to give us something that was divine. And the only thing that is divine is himself. And through, through the graces of God, he came to earth in the form of Jesus. In the second part here, the bottom part of this diagram. And this became the role of Jesus, who offered himself as that divine sacrifice, sufficient to open the doors again of heaven and allow mankind the possibility, not the assurance, but the possibility of returning to God in heaven at the end of life and at the end of time. Then when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit then descended on the apostles and presumably on all of us in the church, uh, that is the role and the time of the Holy Spirit. And it is the role of the Holy Spirit to take the teachings of the Father and the Son and the sacrifice of the Son and explain them to us as individuals and through the church in order for us to understand how we must respond to God and eventually return to God in the future. How many of you uh, believe that everyone goes to heaven? Now, don't be afraid. Some people actually do. Everyone goes to heaven. God would not put anybody in hell. Well, unfortunately, Marge, I have to tell you, you're wrong. 
Well, that's just the point. You have to repent. Okay? You have to repent. I just burst and heard the balloon, I'm sure. Uh, I have a sister who is a nun, and she still feels that way. And she's 85 years old, and she, I think, go to her grave thinking that everybody is going to go to heaven because God is so good and loving that he would never send anybody to us. That's the whole purpose of this book of Deuteronomy. That's the whole purpose of this book of Deuteronomy. The whole idea is that this book differs from all of the other books of this five group here because the other four are written as histories, good as they are, they have a purpose, they have a meaning, but they are written as histories. The book of Deuteronomy is not written as a history, but as a instruction, as advice to help you see the seriousness of disobeying God. The whole idea of Deuteronomy is fidelity to God or, or obedience, either way, or punishment. And there is a lot of punishment in the book of Deuteronomy because punishment is part of love. We've all heard the statement of tough love. Parents who do not reprimand their children as they're growing up, and appropriate for the time and the event, uh, do not love their children then properly. Punishment goes along with love. And that is what this whole book is about. We have to obey the teachings of Christ and the church and the teachings of God in general, or we will be punished. And you will see that the three great events of Judaism in the Old Testament times is, first of all, when they split the kingdom into two parts, Israel and Judah. The second one is the conquest of the northern kingdom by Assyria simply because of the degradation, the moral degradation of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the third one is the Babylonian exile, which was caused by the people's disregard for the book of Deuteronomy that was given to them and a number of other <coughs> events knowing that the people of the north were conquered by the Assyrians for the same reason, but that didn't seem to affect or bother the people of Judah. And they went the same way, so they got the same punishment. This is punishment that God inflicted on those people. 
for ignoring him and ignoring the teachings that he gave them. Now, what does that all mean to us? And even when you think of the natural disasters that we have been incurring over a period of time, William? Uh, good point. Can you hold that? And I'll pick it up. I'll answer that question in a minute. The dis natural disasters that we have experienced versus the, uh, the horrific crimes that certainly have been exposed and developed and happened and occurred over a period of time. This is a clash between God and Satan, and it is manifesting itself very prominently right in our own time and our own age. And if we don't do something about it, then we are going to experience the same kind of thing that the people of the north did from the Assyrians and the people from the south did from the Babylonians. And yet, I have presented that same argument to the bishop, to the priest, and they all ignore it. You can't ignore it, but you can do something about it, at least on a personal basis. And that is make sure that your relationship with God is sincere and right and holy. Any questions on that? Anyone disagree with that? All right, then I would expect that all of you will get an A on your report card from this class. All right, Lillian, let me get back to what you just said. Madge, did you just say you didn't agree with me? Yes. Well, that's it. Look at all the tornadoes and so forth going, particularly through the south and the fires and so forth here. God is trying to get our attention. I don't think we can blame it on God. Oh, no? No, because he's too good for us. Well, that's why we're getting it right. Dear, it has happened before many, many times. And it is happening again for the same reason. We are so preoccupied with our smartphones and uh, styles and gratification of all kinds uh, that uh, it is totally ignoring God. All right. We got a good God, and I don't think he wants us to destroy things like we did in paradise. Well, we didn't destroy it. Nobody did that on purpose. No. Nobody brings the tornadoes. That's not our part or our capability. That's only God can do that. No one requires the people that do all the shooting to do that. That's the devil. Devil has entered the hearts of people and has totally 
taken over the life of many people. I want to answer Lillian's question about when did the Messiah and that begin? When the people of Babylon returned to Judah, let me give you a little sight there. Up till that time, other nations around Judah would refer to the people there as Judahites. We had uh, so many other names, Prizites, Edomites, Alamites, and oh, a few others. It just means that uh, the ites part of any word meant the people of such a region. It was customary then by others to call the people of Judah returning from Babylon as the Judahites. But over a short period of time, that for some reason or other, they wanted to be a little bit more distinguished uh, as different than the other communities around them. So they shortened it to Jew. And that is how the word Jew took place. You will not find Jew anywhere in the Old Temple, in the Old Testament. But it is not a derogatory word if used properly. All right. So please, ladies and gentlemen, don't think I'm anti-Semitic uh, and I dislike the Jewish people because I am only repeating what's in the Old Testament, written by the Jewish people themselves. It's strange how they could write something so uh, condemning of themselves and yet continue right along with what they were doing. But, again, getting back to the subject, once they came back, they began to realize that never again would they be uh, sovereign rulers of their own territory. Because when they came back to Judah, they were still under the domination, of, not of the Babylonians, because they had been conquered by the Persians. So they were, and there was a little intermediary there uh, by the Medes, but the Medes didn't really do much. Anyways, so you had the Medes and the Persians. It was Cyrus the Great, a Persian, who released the Jewish people from Babylon and aided them in returning to Israel or Judah. Okay, And as I said, they were called Judahites for a short time and then gradually shortened it to Jew. So you will see the word Jew in the New Testament, but you will not see that word at all in the Old Testament. <coughs> it was during that time period of which we have very little uh, written information regarding the Jewish people or their beliefs from the time of the uh, Babylonian exile, the end of the exile in 529 BC to the time of Christ. And it was during that time that they realized that they would never be their own rulers again. So they began to look to uh, back to the book of Deuteronomy and many of the other scriptures and realized that the true uh, promised land was not on this earth, but was with God in heaven. And that 
was taken over and it was believed by some of the people, but not all of the people. And that's still true today with the Jewish people. Uh, but then during that time, it was then asked, well, who was going to lead them into this new promised land? Like Moses led them into the promised land way back. Uh, Ezra did a great job in trying to get the people turned around and lead them back to uh, reality and you know, uh, in tune with uh, God. Uh, now who's going to lead them into uh, the new promised land? And they refer back to the promise that God himself made with King David, that there would always be a king on the throne of Judah. Well, there wasn't any king since the 6th century. Herod was, uh, you can't count that because Herod was appointed by the Romans, not uh, by the people of Judah or Israel. Um, so you have a, a mixed feeling there. And that during that time period is when the idea of a Messiah, somebody who would lead them back into uh, the new promised land, that is heaven, uh, began to be developed, but it was not accepted by all the Jewish people. Okay. And there is no specific date that we can give them. Okay. Yes. They didn't know what? No. They always thought that the Messiah would be a human being like David. And that was their model. No, no. And uh, even a lot of uh, non-Catholic uh, people do not accept the sign of the cross uh, as important today. Uh, that's their problem. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, John? And this is why the writings of Isaiah and the prophecies are so important in the Yes. Yes, yes. The writings of Isaiah, uh, who is considered the most important of the literary prophets, uh, do tie all of uh, what I've just said pretty much together regarding the uh, prophecies uh, in about the coming of the Messiah and what he's to be like. But as you know, uh, all of the prophets were murdered by their own people because the people didn't like what they had to say. So, unfortunately. Okay. Any other questions? Well, I hope you get something out of this. I know we're going to cut this a little short, and i got one other item I want to talk about. Uh, but there is so much. You're going to be learning so much more about not only the uh, book of Deuteronomy, but the Old Testament. In fact, in order to uh, give you a little more in-depth as to why the northern kingdom was uh, eventually overrun by the Assyrians in the year 722 BC. Uh, I want you to read next 
for next week uh, the chapters out of the first book of Kings. Okay? Out of the first book of Kings, I'd like you to read uh, chapters 11 through uh, 22 or 23. You can read the whole book because it's not very much. They're very short chapters. But be sure to read those. Uh, if you read the whole uh, first book of Kings, you'll get a better understanding of the split up of the northern and the southern uh, groups of people within uh, Israel. Uh, but it's important that you see particularly uh, how the people of the north were so uh, immoral that God had to step in and do something about it. And that is when uh, the Assyrians came and conquered them in 722 B.C. And what did they do? They carted off all of the uh, people from northern Israel that could do them some good. That was important, that they could do them some good in Assyria. They left behind the, the lame, the crippled, the ill, the real old, or the real young, because those could not do them any good. And uh, they just took those who were good. And in return, they brought all the jailbirds and all of the ne'er-do-wells and so forth from Assyria and plumped them back into uh, the Samaritan part. And those became the Samaritan people that were so hated by the people at Jesus' time. Uh, we're talking about, you know, roughly 700 years. The people that came from Assyria back into northern Israel tried to assimilate. But as we know from the story of the woman on the well, they didn't totally give up some of their own beliefs. And therefore, they were very, they were not Jews. They were not any longer uh, Assyrians or whatever that nationality was at the time. So they became sort of, you know, a mixture. And that is why they were so disliked uh, by the southern Jewish people because they were so pure in their own minds and hearts uh, that they wouldn't accept uh, anyone from the outside. And that is the cause and the purpose of why the Samaritans were so disliked at the time of Christ. Okay. And they're going to learn a great deal about Ezra because it's important that you know who this man was and what he did. Again, he's often referred to as the second Moses, but there is so little written about him. We have a very difficult time pinpointing when did he really exist and when did he really work uh, with the people in Babylon, which we know he did, but the time period is rather fussy. And unfortunately, we can't help you on that. But next week, I will give you uh, quite a bit of information on that particular subject. Okay. Another thing I'd like to mention is that 
there will be no class here on October the 9th. That would, would have been our third meeting. I have something that I have to take care of and I cannot uh, put it off to another time and therefore there will be not, there will be another, uh, there will be no class on October the 9th. There will be next week and there will be all, hopefully all the remaining classes after that. So in total there will only be 20, I'm sorry, in total, there will only be nine classes rather than ten. But I think we can uh, get all of what I'm trying to accomplish here in those nine sessions. The other thing is, as you all know, uh, these lectures are all recorded, and I transcribe them onto CDs so that you may have them if you wish. Uh, we have to charge three dollars each for them but if you pay up front for all nine in this click in this uh, session uh, it'll only be a total of twenty five dollars not twenty seven but twenty five okay uh, a lot of people do that you know uh, now please there's going to be a couple ladies back there who will take your registration forms uh, and if you wish the CDs, please tell them, but don't just hand, you know, money to them and expect people to know what it's for. Uh, make sure that they understand, and please do not put money up here on the table without at least a note on it as to what it's for. Uh, in the past, we've had to do that, uh, or we've, we've let it happen, and it's very confusing. Um, any other questions of any kind? Yes, Madge? Yeah, this was a fabulous lesson. Well, I hope so. It was. I learned a lot. Okay. Well, like I said, you're going to learn a lot more than just what the book of Deuteronomy is and what it says. And I, at least I hope you will. Okay. Uh, it's a little early, I know, but because we've covered the material a little faster than I expected, uh, we're going to let you go early, uh, but sometime we'll make it up at another session. All right, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We hope hope and pray that we are learning something that will stick with us and perhaps turn our mind a little bit towards you and the way you operate. You expect fidelity from us and obedience to your word. But you want to be loved, not obeyed out of laws. And that is what got the Jewish people into trouble. So help us to understand that punishment is part of love. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.